Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, good morning, church. Man, that was awesome. Man, we, we serve an amazing God who's still saving people out of their sin. Amen? Yeah. I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 1 as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews and our series Incomparable. I think one of the things that we want to make sure we highlight throughout this entire series is something that was evidenced just by those five individuals who made the public declaration of faith through the waters of baptism is that this is everything. Christ is everything. He makes all the difference. And in a world that is vying for your affection to draw you away from God, he is is piercing through the culture. He's piercing through the the false narratives to say, it is finished. I have done everything needed to give you hope and freedom, a life that you're not going to find anywhere else. Will you follow me? Will you receive it freely? I want to remind us this morning as we turn our attention to God's word of the overarching theme of the book of Hebrews. Christ and the life he offers is incomparable to anything else. Do you believe that? I think there's probably a lot of us in here that would testify to that. I believe that is true. But the question for us this morning is, do we believe it enough to have it influence our our lips and our lives? What we say and how we live. Last week we began with the first four verses of chapter 1. And this morning we're going to work our way through the remainder of chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 4. And we're going to try to see what this author is trying to give his audience as means of an introduction to capture their attention and and to draw them into a letter that was intended to show them that Christ and who he is is incomparable to anything else that they might find in the world. So would you stand with me in the honor of God's word as we read our passage this morning, Hebrews chapter one, verse four through chapter two, verse one. If you're ready to hear from the Lord, say ready. ready. This is the word of our Lord. So he became superior to the angels, just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. And about the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the sun, your throne, God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with an oil of joy beyond your companions. And in the beginning, Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like clothing. You will roll them up like a cloak and they will be changed like clothing. But you are the same and your years will never end. 
Now to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? For this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. Would you pray with me? Father God, now as we direct our attention to your word, we need a word from you. We don't need a word from man. And God, I pray now in these next few moments, you would help us understand how Christ is incomparable to everything else. And we would hear the call to pay attention to what he has said. God, use your word to stir us and to direct our steps. We pray this in your son's name, amen. You may be seated. If I had one goal this morning, it would be just to put Christ on display before you because I believe that if we were to gaze upon Christ this morning, we would leave here in a few minutes impacted by that. The title of this morning's message is The Preeminence of Christ. Preeminence meaning the superiority, the fact that he is higher than everything else. He is greater than everything else. But this phrase in the last verse we just read in chapter two, verse one, is one that has just been rattling around in my mind. I think we have to understand it because it is, is, is the exhortation that the author is trying to get his audience to hear. He says, for this reason, we must pay attention all the more to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. If you think of that word drift, it'd be pretty hard to think of the word drift being used in a positive situation. Now, I know there's some out here that like to drive cars fast and maybe want to drift a little bit. It's not the drifting we're talking about here. If you put it in the context of transportation, a car that is drifting or a boat that is drifting or a plane that is drifting is, is a concerning situation. It starts off usually pretty subtle, but once we start to move it, we don't correct that path, we will end up very, very far away from where we were intended to go. You see, drifting, to drift is never drastic. It never happens in a moment. But uncorrected, it's always dangerous. And the warning here to these Hebrew believers, these people who were choosing to follow Christ, to believe in the gospel, the good news that Jesus was the son of God who came from heaven, took on human flesh, lived a perfect life that qualified him to die for somebody else's sins because he had no sins of his own to pay for. And being God, he was able to die for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future. And he did so and then he was taken off that cross, laid in a tomb, but three days later, rose from the grave victoriously, proving that not only was he the qualified sacrifice, but that he was God in the flesh and his sacrifice was sufficient to cover the sins of all who would believe. And those Hebrew believers were given this invitation to believe in that and have their sins forgiven and have the Holy Spirit come inside their lives and to live now with the promise and a hope that they would be with their God forever. And they heard that truth and many of them believed that truth, but they were living in a world that wanted to distract them from that truth. And his concern is that the cost of following Christ may cause them to compromise and begin to slowly drift away from the truth that saved them. 
You see, to follow Christ would require them to abandon the familiar. Those traditions and those, those relationships that they had grown up to believe that this is where I find my place. This is where I have my footing. This is where I, I, I have identity and care. To follow Christ would cause them to have to, to live in a certain way and to reject certain traditions and to re- reject certain religious practices that they had been raised to believe were the things that they should be following. And to do so, to reject those things to follow Christ would lead them to face rejection and isolation from their family and friends. But that wasn't it. Living, at, living as Hebrews, Jewish people who had, who had studied the Old Testament, had been following the Old Testament laws, would cause them also to not only believe and face the rejection of their family, but would also cause them to live in such a way that would be different from the culture that was growing around them, a pagan culture, a Gentile culture that refused to acknowledge God, that didn't want what Christ was offering through the gospel. And so to follow Christ would require them to live differently from an antagonistic and wicked culture leading to persecution. To follow Christ would require these Hebrew believers that this letter is written to, to make a choice, to stand with Christ apart from family and apart from the world and face isolation, rejection, and persecution. If we understand that about the audience, then we understand his concern that there would be a great temptation to compromise. Is there any way that I can follow Christ and still maintain these things that I have here? The temptation to compromise would have been an attractive solution to the predicament those Hebrew believers found themselves in. But I wonder for us this morning, can we relate to that predicament? Perhaps there are some of you this morning who have decided to follow Jesus. You believe in the gospel and that decision to follow him and to, and to live for him and not to live for the world or not to live for the beliefs that you used to have has caused you to face isolation, rejection from those who you used to be close to. Perhaps it's caused you to face persecution as people hear what you stand for, as you stand for Jesus and you say, I believe this and I want to follow this and I want to live in obedience to this. And and perhaps the people around you hate what this says. And because they hate this and they hate the God who said it, they, they extend that hate towards you and you face the persecution for being a follower of Christ. And perhaps there's moments in your life where you're like, is it really worth it? Is it, is it worth everything that I'm giving up and everything it's cost me here to follow Jesus? You see, little concessions always lead to huge consequences. And this is not just true about what the author of Hebrews is trying to say here when he says, pay attention so you don't drift away. Throughout the scriptures, it talks about this idea that we can start to justify a little sin a little indifference, a little neglect, and think that it's no big deal. It's, it's not that important. We might even claim, well, yeah, I just don't want to be too rigid or too legalistic. And we begin to justify little compromises. But the truth about drifting is it's never drastic, but it's always dangerous. And so the author knew this. 
these Hebrew believers most likely are, are facing persecution from every side and they're probably wondering, is it possible to, to maybe hold on to some of those old traditions of the Jewish faith, some of those old works, those old laws that I used to follow and follow Christ and maybe I would be accepted by Christ but I'd also be accepted by my friends and family still. Or perhaps maybe I don't have to hold to the line of what God says 100%. Maybe I can say, yeah, I believe in that God, but I'm not going to maybe be outspoken about it. Or perhaps I'm going to say, I I, I view things a little bit different, but I still follow you, God. And this temptation to, to maybe compromise would be this path to freedom where they can no longer feel so lonely. But I believe the author of Hebrews knew that there is no freedom in compromise. There's no freedom there. Even if you go all the way back to the beginning of our Bible in Genesis, when the serpent is talking to Eve, the lie is compromise, that there's something better if you will just compromise, if you'll go against what God's word says, there's something better. It's a lie. It's always been a lie. There is no freedom in compromise. There is only freedom in Christ. And yet we daily anchor our lives to something that cannot hold us stable when we face life storms. And sometimes we anchor our lives to something that literally is is actually not fixed. It's movable and it's moving away from God and it drags us away. And so in this chapter, the author makes his first case for the preeminence of the son. And there are three things that we're gonna focus on this morning that we see at the end of chapter one, what he wants his audience to know, what he wants his audience to believe and what he wants his audience to do. Here in verse four, there's an interesting statement because we know in the first three verses that we covered last week, he's, he's saying that long ago, God spoke to his people through the prophets But in these last days, he has now spoken to us through his son and he's giving a case that Christ has come and he he replaces all the copies, all those who came before Christ that were pointing towards this day when God's son would come and be the final word for all believers to follow. He's saying that day has come. And then he makes this interesting statement. He says, so he became superior to the angels just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. And in the rest of chapter one, he begins to contrast the son of God with angels. The first thing he wants his audience to know is that the son is superior to angels. So the question is why? Why Why angels? Uh, to you, this might seem like a, an interesting thing. Why would that be an, an area that he needed to expose or he needed to speak to? But I think understanding about how his audience viewed angels will help us understand why he started to contrast these things, to try to help them see that Christ was preeminent. He was superior to the angels and, and why his word should be trusted over the word of God's messengers. It says that, If you read through different commentaries, you look at Jewish history, the Jewish people had a very high view of angels. They were seen as messengers from God and ministers to believers. There's multiple passages in the scriptures that talk about this. And if you go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible, the Old Testament, the last book of what's called the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, It says in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse two, that the angels were there when God gave Moses the law. Deuteronomy 33, two, if you wanna write it down, look later. 
says they assisted God in, in handing this law, communicating this law to Moses, which was supposed to be given to the people. And this is what is known as the Mosaic covenant or the, the old covenant. And what we see in Exodus is God goes to Moses and he says, I'm going to uh, enter into this covenant with you, Israelites. And here's what, what that means. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And as long as you obey my laws, there's promise and provision. I will protect you. I'll provide for you. I will be your God. But if you disobey those laws, there'll be consequences. I'll hold you accountable. And so God gives them this, this promise and then he gives them this law, starting with the 10 commandments. And there's a whole bunch of other laws as a way to kind of help them. The grounds of this covenant Follow these laws, follow these rules, and this will allow you to experience the promises of this covenant. These, these laws, these words that came from the Lord through the angels to man were sacred. It was the grounds for their relationship with God. And God's promises were directly related to their obedience to the law. But the author here highlights three ways that the son was superior to the angels and the message they delivered. And we see here in some of your Bibles that starting in verse five through verse 13, some of your Bibles might have uh, certain segments of those passages bolded or in some sort of script that denotes that this is different. That means he's quoting something. What we see here is the author of Hebrews starts to quote the Old Testament. Seven different passages he starts to quote from their sacred writings that actually show them that God said, I'm gonna send my son and that son is gonna be superior to these angels. Why is this significant? Well, because it's from their very scriptures that he will make the case that there is one greater than the angels who has come. The first way that he highlights that the son is more significant than the angels is in his relationship. Look what it says here in verse five. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will again be my son. Verse six, again, when he brings his firstborn to the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. The son is a title. Before, before Christ came to earth, it was the three persons of the Godhead when he comes here, he's, he's given this name, son. It's not meaning that he was born after God. He's, he's co-eternal with the father. He's, he's an eternal God, but he's given this name to show the relationship that he is, that he is God. He's, he's one with the father, father and son. There's this, there's this divine relationship. And that name is a special name. Not anyone else gets that name, only Christ. That angels, not, angels are not given that name. The father and son have a direct and distinct relationship with each other. And because of the son's name, because of his relationship with God, because of the fact that the son is God, he is deserving of the angel's worship. But not only is he more superior to the angels in his relationship with the father, but he's also more superior than the angels in his role. In verse seven, it says, and about the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the son, your throne God is forever and ever and your scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. The angels were created servants, ministers that were sent out by God. 
They were servants. We see this again in verse 14 when it says, aren't they not all, speaking of angels here, ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation. There's a special designation that God's angels have that God uses them to minister and to bring word to humans, those who are going to inherit salvation, that's us. But they are created servants. The son, however, is the eternal creator of all things. We see that in verses 10 through 12. In the beginning, Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the works of your hand. Here we see the author to note that it was Christ who's given credit for the creation of all things. They will perish, you will remain. They will wear out like clothing, you will roll them up like a cloak. They will be changed like clothing, but you are the same and your years will never end. So the son is superior to the angels. These, these messengers who were part of giving the law to the people, these messengers who were held in high regard as, as God's servants. And if an angel said something, you, you listen to it because you know it came right from God. And the author of Hebrews is saying, oh, there's actually one greater now that has come, the son. He's superior than those angels in his relationship with the Father. He's superior in his role as creator versus them as servants, but he's also superior to them in his rule. Again, back to verses eight and nine, it talks about this son being God, your, son, your throne, God is forever and ever. He's in an exalted position. In verse 13, he quotes this passage where it says, now to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy your footstool. This is an exalted position, not given to an angel, but given only to God. So Christ is superior. So why is this important? Why is he going to this great length to say, hey, I know you hold the angels in high regard. And yes, they have been responsible for delivering to you a message from God that has been very important, but it was never meant to be the final word. And now there is one who has come, the incarnate word, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And he has come to deliver the final word for you to follow. The use of Old Testament prophecy here, using these seven verses as he makes a case for the preeminence of the son, I'm sure to this Hebrew audience who knew the Old Testament scriptures, who studied it, I'm sure as he makes this statement, wait, this son is superior to the angels? And then he starts to use their scriptures to show it. I'm sure they're just, their minds are blown. Like, how did we not see it? But what I love about that is the authority of any preacher. If a preacher is gonna say anything that actually has true authority, it should be rooted because God said it, not because they said it, amen? And that's what he's doing here. This is not just the, the opinion of the, the author of Hebrews that the son is superior to angels. This is the opinion of God, the one who wrote all of these things, who created the angels. So we best pay attention. So that's what he wants his audience to know. The son is superior to angels, but then we see what he wants the audience to believe. The son is a superior messenger of a superior message. It's not just that, hey, here he's come one that is, is superior to the angels and he's also gonna bring you a word. No, what he is going to say is the final word to follow. You see, the angels were a messenger of an old covenant given by God at Mount Sinai. And the promises, like I mentioned earlier, were kind of an if-then covenant. If you follow this, and if you obey this, then I will do these things. And he gives this law 
for them to follow. It's kind of a guardrails. But what scripture goes on to tell us is that the law was never meant to be a means by which we could save ourselves. It was always a, a, a tutor is what it says. It was, it was used by God to show us how far we had missed the mark and how greatly we needed somebody else to come in and save us out of our mess. See, the law was never meant to be a means to earn our salvation. And so we have these, these rules. He says, follow these things in obedience to me, but I know you're gonna fail these. And so within the law, he also built in a sacrificial system. And he said, you're gonna sin. And in order for me to have a relationship with you, we're gonna have to deal with that sin. So here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna have to sacrifice an animal. Blood is gonna have to be shed. Or there's gonna, if you don't have an animal, there's gonna have to be some other sacrifice that's made on behalf of your sins. And you're gonna have to do this repeatedly and constantly in order to have a relationship with me. And so all the time, you would see the smoke rising off the altar of sacrifices being made for people's sins over and over and over and over again. Why? Because the law never got to a point where a person didn't need to sacrifice anymore for their sins. There was always something that would trip them up and keep them estranged from God. And then Jesus comes. See, Jesus is not just a more superior messenger because he's God and and the angels are created beings. No, he's a superior messenger because his message is superior. The angels were a mediator. They were messengers of the old covenant. But when Jesus comes, he says, I'm here and I'm bringing a new covenant in my blood. I have a better message for you. I'm gonna enter into a new covenant to all who will believe. And it's no longer gonna be, if you stay faithful, then I will bless you and I will will give you promises. No, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give my life. My blood is going to be poured out for you. I'm gonna die in your place and I'm gonna secure salvation once and for all. And when you believe in that gospel message, I will forgive your sins. And there is nothing that will take you from me. There is no longer any condemnation for all of those who are in me. You will be rescued. The perfect sacrifice offered once and for all, not the ongoing offering of sacrifices for sins. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. The temptation for these Hebrews, I'm sure, as they're living in persecution and isolation and rejection is to kind of hear like, is it possible for me to to, to follow Christ, but also kind of hold on to some of these practices who, okay, maybe they don't help me anymore, but man, they feel comfortable to still do. The temptation was the gospel plus something. But I believe the author knew two things. He knew that the addition of any kind of laws or any kind of rules would not lead these people into freedom, but keep them under the obligation of the law. You keep doing that, and then there's gonna be an obligation. I gotta continue to do that in some way to earn God's favor, to earn God's acceptance, to earn his forgiveness. And, And Christ says, no, no, there's no need to earn it. I've secured it. It is finished. Will you inherit it? Will you receive it freely through belief, through faith? I think the author also knew that a little bit of law would draw them back into self reliance rather than spirit reliance. Do you know I believe this is true for us still today? We confuse spiritual disciplines as a way to try to earn God's favor. I think God wants us to pray. I think God wants us to read our Bibles. I think God wants us to be a part of a local church. I think God wants us to 
to serve and, and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. But his number one call for us is to be his child, to be in relationship with him. And sometimes we can focus more on doing all the religious activities because they in some ways feel like we, we're making ourselves more presentable to God rather than just live in relationship with him and say, I have nothing, you have everything. I am completely reliant on your spirit. I have nothing to offer. And so this, this section of, of chapter one, I think he's saying, hey, I need you to know that Christ is superior to the angels and his message is superior because he has brought a better covenant to us a promise that is not contingent on anything other than belief. And once we believe, it is secure and we are settled. And we're given new purpose, a new life, a new direction. And so what does he want his audience to be? This is the last part this morning. He wants his audience to be anchored to Christ alone so they won't drift away. There are three phrases here in verse two that kind of stand out to me. The first one is this phrase, pay attention here in the CSB. In the Greek language, this means to turn towards, to devote oneself to, or to attach oneself to. He's saying, pay attention. It's almost like he started writing this letter and by the end of this first paragraph, he is just already, I have to make an exhortation. I have to charge you for something. I have to call you to something. Pay attention to what has already been heard so that you will not drift away. That's the second phrase, drift away. This idea of following away from belief or to, to flow past or to slip away. But what I love here is what he says is, pay attention all the more to what we heard so that we will not drift away. I love how one commentary said, he highlighted this statement because he's saying, listen to this. He's not saying, hey, the key to you not drifting the way, the key to you staying focused on Christ is learning more and more about him and getting deeper and deeper in that knowledge. He's saying, just hold on to what he's already said. Sometimes the solution for us drifting is us just going back to those basic principles and say, Jesus is preeminent, his word is true, and I'm gonna follow him. Go back to the basics. The call here isn't into deeper understanding, but to remember what has already been proclaimed in Christ. He wants his audience to be anchored in Christ. And we're gonna see as we read through the book of Hebrews, this, this idea of being anchored in Christ is gonna continue to come up because the concern is a concern that wasn't new to this day and age. And it's still an issue today is that we can know the truth, but we can begin to drift away. And drifting is always dangerous. In his commentary on the book of Hebrews, R. Kent Hughes says this, the church's experience 2000 years ago intersects our lives in this way. Drifting is the besetting sin of our day. And as a metaphor suggests, it is not so much intentional as in some unconcern. Christians neglect their anchor, Christ, and begin to drift away quietly. There's no friction, no dramatic sense of departure, but when the winds of trouble come, the things of Christ are left far behind, even out of sight. I mentioned earlier that the concern was that these Hebrews who had placed their faith in Christ and said, I'm gonna walk away from that old covenant and those old laws and I'm now gonna walk in newness of life based on my faith alone and Christ alone, that those people were going to be 
exiled. They were going to be put outside by their Hebrew friends and family. But then they were also going to be living for Christ in a world that didn't want anything to do with Christ. And his concern was that they'd begin to potentially drift away, that they begin to compromise to alleviate some of that rejection or isolation or persecution from friends and foes. And the, tra- and the, the, the same can be true for you and me. But there's other ways that we can drift. I think a lack of spiritual stamina can cause us to drift. You know, self-produced spirituality is short-lived. I don't know if you've ever like gotten kind of a, a desire that kind of wells up inside of you to start like working out or Maybe you used to play basketball and you're like, I'm gonna go play a pickup game down at the gym. And you walk in and everybody that's playing is a little bit younger, a little bit fitter, a little lighter. But you know, you remember the glory days. Maybe you have your practice jersey from when you played and you put it on and you got your old tennis shoes from high school and you strap them on and you go out there and you go hard. You're gonna show these young bucks a thing or two on the basketball court. And about one or two times down the court, you need a sub. You need oxygen. Those young guys are going and grabbing the AED and they're saying, we might have a problem here in a minute, right? I'm gonna do this, I can do this. I'm gonna go hard and we, we realize that we are out of shape. We don't have the stamina to be able to do the, everything that's gonna need to be do to play and compete the whole time. I think the same is true for us spiritually. The goal this morning is not for me to charge you up to go out and then live for Jesus apart from the spirit. Because for you to do that, you will realize you'll get to Monday, you'll begin doing good, you're gonna get tomorrow, you're gonna pray, read your Bible, you're gonna call somebody and witness to them. And then on Tuesday, you're gonna hit the snooze. Why? Because if it's, if it's just in you, what's gonna happen is life's gonna get busy. We're gonna get distracted. There's gonna be things that kind of get in the way. We're gonna fall back into old practices. But if it's truly of the Lord for saying, Lord, help me, change me, he will give you the stamina to be able to stay anchored to him. But we can drift if we're just focused on our own self-produced spirituality. A lack of spiritual stamina can cause us to drift. But there's another thing that can cause you and I to drift. Spiritual boredom. Where we get so familiar with what scripture says, we believe it, but just over time, it, it becomes less inspiring to us. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember when I used to think that. I remember when I used to have that much passion for God's word, yeah. And we start to drift, right? I, do I really need to read the Bible today? Do I really need to talk to the Lord? Do they, do I, I already did my tour of service at church. I don't probably need to go serve anymore. We start to slowly start to compromise and we start to drift away. But then all of a sudden we wake up one morning like, man, I feel really disconnected from the church. I haven't really felt like I've talked to God. I'm not even sure he's really listening to me. What happened? Drifting is rarely drastic, but it always leads to danger. So you and I can drift through a lack of spiritual stamina. We can drift through spiritual boredom, but we can also drift by distraction. We slowly slip away because of the busyness of of life or a pursuit for something else besides Christ. Oh, I just, I'm really focused on my job right now. I'm really focused on my kids right now. I'm really focused on getting this launched. I'm really focused on developing this clientele. And once I get there, then I'll be able to kind of settle in and I'll be about ministry. But what we know is that that slow drift, it, it doesn't actually stop 
then we get so far away we might not know how to get back. There's a story from the 1800s of these two trappers. They had been out in the Tennessee wilderness hunting and uh, they had had a pretty good haul. And so it was time for them to go home. It was, they'd been kind of gone from their family all summer long and it was now in the fall. And even though the weather was nice, it was starting to turn. They said, it's probably best for us to head back home. And so they collected all the, the, the furs and the pelts that they had gathered over the time. And they went back to the river where they had hidden two canoes, one for each of them. And so they loaded everything that they had caught and all their supplies. And both of these men began to float the river and began to paddle back home. Now it was a beautiful fall day, kind of like the weather we've been having lately where it's unusually warmer than, than normal and things were going pretty good and they both had paddled for a couple of hours and they were having to paddle upstream because that's where home was at. And one of the guys decided, man, I just need a little bit of rest. It's pretty warm. We've made pretty good progress today. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna take a little bit of, of a rest. I'm gonna take a nap in my canoe. And, and knowing that there was wild animals close to shore, he didn't really wanna kind of get close to shore and anchor down. So he just said, I'm gonna kind of just kind of keep my boat out here uh, kind of out of the main current, but I'm gonna not put it on the shore. Well, the other man says, man, I, I'm tired, I'm beat too, but like, I just have this vision of a home-cooked meal and see my wife, so I'm gonna keep rowing. So the other guy keeps rowing. And a couple hours later, the guy who takes a nap wakes up and he realizes that as he was taking a nap, his boat had drifted all the way back to where he had started. Well, now he's gotta make double time. So he gets back up and he's like, ooh, 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 ooh. I'm sure that stamina was starting to wear on him. And he worked his way all the way back to where he had, had gotten to where he took the nap, but he's just so tired. He's like, okay, I gotta take a little bit of a break. And so he, he stops for a minute, he lays down for a bit. Other guy, he's been paddling. He just, yeah, he's not going as hard, but he's been staying steady. If he gets, and he can kind of get to around the corner, he can, he can see the lights of home and he can start to smell somebody cooking something that smells familiar. And, he gets home. Well, the other guy wakes up from his second nap and this time he is further drifted away. But what woke him up this time was the waves of the rapids rocking his little canoe and he begins to get there and he gets up just in time to see a sign that says, danger, don't go past this point, the point of no return. And he starts paddling with all his might, but he does not have what it takes to be able to get out of that current and he goes over the waterfall. You and I can think that it's just a little bit of compromise. It's just a little bit of like, hey, I, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus, but do I really have to obey every single thing? Do I really need to stay faithful to what he's called me to? Can I just take a little bit of a break? Can I just, you know, I've been working really hard or I just got to focus on this or I'm going to try to do both at the same time. But the reality is, is if we anchor our lives onto anything else besides Christ, the current of life in this world will take us far away from him. And so the, the author of this passage is saying, Christ has come, he's come as the word of God in the flesh. He has delivered a superior message, one that is greater than the angels, one that the, the angels looked forward to. He's the messenger of a better promise. So pay attention, pay attention. Don't anchor your life on anything else besides Christ and his word. Don't neglect the only anchor that will keep you safe. 
I want to close with just a, a short four-line poem that I've read before, but every time I talk about or come across a passage in Scripture that talks about the need to remain anchored to Christ, I'm just reminded of it. It's by an old country pastor named Vance Havner. It goes like this. I've tried in vain a thousand ways my fears to quell, my hopes to raise. But what I need, the Bible says, is ever only Jesus. What are you anchored to? Let's pray. Father God, we we come to you now and, and there's a couple of responses that I anticipate could be being stirred up in the room. Father, as we hear this, this truth that the son is preeminent, he is superior to all things. And as we work our way through the book of Hebrews, we're going to see case after case made why Christ is better, why he is supreme and why he deserves our, our worship, our trust, our faith, our lives. God, as we hear this message this morning, we hear this exhortation to pay attention. For some of us in here this morning who've already placed our faith in the gospel, the challenge right now in our spirits is to reevaluate where we've been anchored to. And God, I just pray that you would help us as to actually lean into that. If your spirit is prompting some in the room this morning to perhaps say, hey, listen to what's being said, pay attention to what's been proclaimed because you're anchoring onto something that's not gonna lead you closer to me. It's gonna cause you to drift. God, if that is true for us, if the Holy Spirit is prompting us this morning, would you call us to just confess that? Admit it, God, I've been anchoring my life to something either other than you or in addition to you and repent from that, to turn away from that. Say, God, help me just to be focused on you this week, to trust you with all those other details. Trust you to give me the wisdom on how to navigate those choices. If that's you this morning, Lord, please don't let anybody here just sense that and then squash it and go, okay, but just a little bit more. If I can just go a little longer, then I'll get right with God. No, today is the day. If, if the Lord is prompting you to say, hey, pay attention. God, I pray that you would help us walk through that with you. But there's some in the room, possibly Father, also that who are not saved. They've never believed in the gospel for salvation. This morning, they're hearing about a life that is available to them that's not reliant on their ability, that doesn't limit them based on their past mistakes, but offers them freedom and stability and hope because of what your son has done. Father, I pray that you would cause them to say, I don't wanna live on my own. I don't wanna be anchored to this world anymore. I wanna be anchored to Christ. God, if that is their desire, would you help them to find someone next to them or come forward here at the end and, and ask for someone to help them understand what it means to start a relationship with Jesus Christ. Father God, there's so many other things in this world that are trying to distract us. There's so many things that we can say that are clever, that might inspire us from a message, but your message is clear this morning and it's piercing through to our hearts and it's saying, pay attention to what you have heard so that you will not drift away. Help us to see that your son is superior. His word can be trusted and help us to be anchored to him alone. We pray this in your son's beautiful name.